Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we are in the book of Nahum. You can also go online. And of course, if you pull up our page, you can go to the live page that has scriptures there. If you go to the 411, it also has a place there that you can enter prayer requests. You can enter your personal information and there's resources there. So I'd encourage you to, to look at that and use that right on the website. There's a 411. If you click on that and scroll down, there's a lot of links that are helpful. Uh, and so we encourage you to to take advantage of that. Um, we are in our series, and the series is called War and Peace. I don't know a better Sunday to kick that off. That wasn't the intention. We were going to start last week, and then we kind of did an audible because we didn't have power last week, and so we uh, kind of changed things up. Um, and this is Memorial Day. It's a time that we remember those that gave their life so that we can sit here and freely worship and freely proclaim Christ. And Realize that God is the one that raises up and tears down nations, and for some reason, um, he has raised up our nation, and we are where we are and doing what we're doing. And so I'd encourage you to remember that, to be thankful to God that he's placed you where he has. It's easy to complain. It's easy to be upset. That's kind of the popular thing to do now in our culture, just depending on what side of the political aisle you're on versus learning to just be grateful and thankful, which God calls us to. Um, and so I would encourage you to do that. And again, um, as we look at this book, one of the things you have to keep in mind in the book of Nahum is that, that this book is written to try to get people to remember, to remember what God has written in his law. The people of God were being disobedient. The people of Nineveh were being disobedient. Um, we'll look at that in a moment. But one of the problems that we have in our culture today is that we like to remember, but we don't like to remember too much and too far back. We like to remember like the things that have impacted us in our sphere. So we like go back to maybe grandparents, but after that, everyone's forgotten. We just don't care. And that's pretty normal because it's only to grandparents that probably your life was affected. So you really don't care about those that were past that. And you don't really care about those that are coming after you necessarily until you get to be a grandparent. And then it becomes important to think like, well, am I going to be remembered? Am I just going to die into oblivion and be forgotten? And so this idea of remembering is something that God says all the way through the Bible constantly. Remember, remember, remember. It's why he gives us a Bible that is incredibly accurate. That as they found ancient manuscripts of the scriptures, the reason that you don't know about the terrible and awful mistranslations um, is because they don't exist. The more they find ancient translations and then start translating them, the more secular scholars give up and then turn it over to the Christian and Jewish scholars to translate because it's like it just proves the Bible right and very accurate. Does that mean there aren't some problems out there that we don't know about? Sure, but for the most part, extensively, the Bible is the most proven book, book for the most historical accuracy you can find on the planet. And to throw out the scripture as a non-accurate book that we shouldn't use to remember what the past was like, would, you'd have to throw out every other ancient document that's ever existed because there's been no book preserved as perfectly and as well as the Holy Scriptures. That's just science. And so Nahum is a prophet that God called, and he's trying to get Nineveh, because Nineveh was a nation God raised up, to remember that God spared them, and now they're treating God's people like dirt. 
And God is like, I'm not happy with this. And he's trying to remember his people. Remember Nineveh that I raised up and I've used them to persecute you because, and discipline you because you won't listen? And so Nahum is writing. And see, in war, there's this great tactic that all wars have. And here it is, fear. In a war, the goal is to get your enemy to be afraid. That's the goal. Because you don't want to destroy everything your enemy has because you want their stuff. You don't have to rebuild it all. So your goal is to try to get them to be as afraid as possible and forget all the times that they've won and forget their strength and forget everything so that you can take advantage, tactical advantage of where they're at. You want to put the fear of your authority in their lives. And that's what God does in Nahum. He is saying, I am going to put my fear in you. That you, you are so afraid of everything else. The southern kingdom is afraid of Assyria. And God says, look, you have got to have no fear except me. And the tendency when we're afraid is either to fight or to run away. That's the tendency in fear. And God says, when you fear me, you know that fighting and running away are neither of the options. When you properly fear me, you surrender. You just bow. You don't fight and you don't run. You just come before him and say, you're God. Do as you will. I surrender. And God is trying to get to his people and these evil Ninevites at the time, these evil Assyrians, to see that you guys have got to surrender. All this fighting doesn't stop. There isn't, there's, there's no peace there's only going to be war and there'll only be temporary false peace until there's this surrender to the God of the universe and the authority he has in the world. That's the book of Nahum that he lays out for us. And we live in a world that's constantly afraid. The two scripture verses that we'll talk about over and over again are this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. That's what Nahum starts out the book. And then in the end of chapter 1, Nahum says, Look to the mountains, the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. So in just one chapter, in a few verses, Nahum is like, It is going to be bad. It is going to be war. There's going to be vengeance. There's going to be death. But look for God's peace. Not coming from where you think it's going to come from, but coming from him. That's what he lays out in the book. And this morning, what I want us to look at is this, because this is what the first chapter of Nahum is all about, and that is Yahweh is. You see, what you believe about God, who you believe that God is, will define your life. This week, I had some conversations with people about the personhood of God, and it just broke my heart. These people a couple of them that claimed to be Christians, and as I talked to them about the character of God, it was like I was talking to them from a Bible that they knew nothing about and a God they didn't know. And I just shook my head and I thought, who has taught you? Who has, who has not challenged what you think about God? One person was like, yeah, I, just, I think that God's so merciful that all paths are just going to lead to the same place. He's just going to forgive everybody. I mean, and you call yourself a believer and a committed churchgoer. What, you have not read your Bible then. So then I talked to him about that and the conversation was, well, no, I, I think the Bible's been mistranslated. Who taught you that? 
And what church has allowed you to believe that the last 25 or 30 years of your life? Who has not loved you enough to challenge you because Nahum has been sent by God just like Jesus was because God loved people enough, you and his own people, to say you're wrong. I'm trying to save you. You are at a war you can't win and you are not going to find peace until you listen to me. And that's what God does with Nahum. We're trying to find a lasting peace. There's wars going on everywhere. And the only way we're going to find peace and know if we're fighting in the right war is if we know who God is. That's it. There's no other alternative. And when you get God wrong, you get everything else wrong. And the story of the Bible are people always trying to make God in their image instead of embracing what God says about his image. That's the story of creation. It hasn't changed. It started in Genesis, and it's going to go all the way to Revelation. We want a God. The reason Jesus was rejected by his own people was because he brought the truth about who Yahweh was. And he said, I am Yahweh who saves. That was his words, not mine. And the people rejected that. We'll see in just a moment. So the question for us this morning is, do you really believe in who Yahweh says he is? Because if you don't, you won't have peace. And you're going to have a war you can't win. And I want you to understand that you're getting getting to fight a battle that's worth fighting. It's Memorial Day. Where we celebrate and try to remember that it was worth fighting all the battles we fought. And that we have peace. Can I just encourage you? God's been trying to get that message across for all of human history. And we keep ignoring it to build our own kingdoms. And then he comes and warns. He says, you've built your own kingdom. I'm going to tear it down. And we go, no, no, no. I'm good. So let's dive in. Nahum 1.1. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the, ver- of the vision of Nahum, the, the Elkoshite. We have no idea what an Elkoshite is. We don't know where that's from. Some scholars believe it might have even been from Galilee or Nazareth. That area of the world. This could be like Jesus himself coming out. Some scholars believe. But we're not sure where his city was. He's just this Nahum guy. Okay? And, and an oracle, all an oracle is, is a wise authoritative statement. That's all an oracle is. It's a wise authoritative statement to people. And he calls out Nineveh. And Nineveh is the, is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. At this time, the Assyrian Empire is the greatest empire to ever exist on the face of the planet. They're even bigger than Egypt at this point. They're huge. And Nineveh is their capital. And at this point, Nineveh is at the height, the height of its power, of its beauty, of its prestige, and of its, like, building campaign. Like, when when Nahum is prophesying, Assyria is at the top of the food chain. And so for him to come in and give this oracle would seem nuts because things were going so well for the Ninevites and for the Assyrian Empire. And things were not going well for God's people. And they were questioning who Yahweh really was. They were considering surrendering. By the way, the city of Nineveh is actually located in Iraq. It's the city of Mosul that you probably heard a few times on the news. Only thing is, is it's not actually the city of Mosul because even they wouldn't build on the site that God said would never be built on again. So the city's actually buried near the river 
and they've been excavating it and finding artifacts, but it's been wiped out and leveled, but it's right near the city of Mosul. And so here you have Nahum preaching during one of the darkest periods in the history of God's people. They were full of all kinds of idols. They had wicked kings, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been destroyed by Assyria. We'll see in just a moment. And Nahum's name means comfort. Nahum's name and what he writes means comfort. And when you read what he wrote, you're going to be like, that's not comforting. (laughs) It is if you believe in who Yahweh is. It's very comforting. If you don't, then it'll scare the bejeebers out of you and you won't be comforted. I just promise it will. And so Nahum writes in this hopeless situation, kind of us, like what are we going to do? Our nation's ripped apart. It's a mess. It's no different. Let me give you a quick history lesson so you understand this book. In 930, Israel splits, okay? So in, in the year 930, Israel splits into a northern and southern kingdom. They become Israel in the north with 10 tribes and Judah in the south representing Judah and like one other tribe. They split. They split because Solomon was so heavy on his taxes and he was was conscripting everyone to fight in his armies and to build his massive things that he wanted built. So he was forcing his own people and even other people under his authority He was forcing them with huge taxes, huge burdens. He was making the people work for him. He was doing all of this in the name of building a temple that I would argue God never asked him to build. If you go back and read, we've talked about this before in some of our other series, God told David he would build a temple, and God told David, I will have a son of yours sit on my throne. He never asked David to build a temple for him. That's how David interpreted it, and God allows us to do things for him, even if it's not the best thing, right? You've done it. I've done it. And there's a reason why there's not a temple anymore. God's like, well, you built it. I tore it down, (laughs) and I brought my temple, which is Jesus himself building his temple now in heaven, and our bodies are the temple. And so you have to remember that the kingdom splits into two guys, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Rehoboam had a chance to repent, stop charging the taxes, free the people. And instead, because Jeroboam started to get some influence, and he was a general of Solomon's who had betrayed Solomon, Rehoboam made it even harder for the people in the north because he was so angry they were following Jeroboam. So instead of offering repentance and peace, he went to war against them. And they said, enough's enough, we're separating. And in the midst of that, God told Jeroboam, look, I understand this is bad. Rehoboam's wicked. I get it. But I'm asking you, Jeroboam, do not build another temple. Do not worship me in another place in Jerusalem. Still submit to the worship that's in Jerusalem. I want you to leave and tell your people to come to Jerusalem to worship, even though you're at war and there's a mess with Rehoboam. Our country's divided right now. It's a mess. And God says, I want you to still submit to, to, to the Old Testament system the best you can of the tabernacle of the temple. Like, please do that. And Jeroboam says, no. I'm going to build my own religious center. I'm going to build my own altar. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to lead the ten tribes to worship there and reject Jerusalem and reject your word and reject your priests. And God said, if you do that, judgment is coming on you. Don't do it. And he ignores it. And so, 
about 150 odd years later. Oh, and at that time too, the Assyrian Empire becomes the dominant empire in the world at that time. The Assyrian Empire takes over as the dominant empire at the same time that Israel splits. God says, okay, I'm going to begin to raise up a nation that's going to bring my judgment at the same time that they're in fighting with themselves. You see this all through human history. God's hands manipulating the nations to try to get the attention of his people and trust in who he is. So that happens. Jonah goes and warns. God calls Jonah, the prophet Jonah, to go to Nineveh. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. We'll look at this in a minute. Jonah goes to Nineveh. The Ninevites repent. The, people, the men of Nineveh repent, put on sackcloth and ashes, cry out to God and says, Yahweh is the God who is. And literally like surrenders themselves to repentance to the God of Yahweh. Jonah didn't want to go because he knew God was merciful and slow to anger. And he's like, I want them all to die, so I'm not going to go. And we'll read that story in a sec. And then, after Jonah prophesies, the northern kingdom of Israel still doesn't repent. They still won't listen. God has actually given the Assyrians a soft heart towards Israel, and God's own people have a harder heart than the Ninevites do towards him. And so God's like, fine, I'm going to raise up these people who at least are friendly to me to punish you, to discipline you. And so God sends the Assyrians in, and you see here, In 722, the Assyrians conquer the ten tribes in the north of Israel. And it's bad. It's merciless. People are slaughtered. And the ten tribes of Israel are never heard from again and scattered forever. It's that bad. But God spent about 200 years telling them, please don't do this. I don't know about you, but I'm not that patient with my children. It's like, I told you to do this now. Like, I, like it's now. 200 years, God is slow. Judah is under assault now. In 622, now Judah's scared to death. Oh my goodness, God's going to come get us too. There's kind of a mini revival that happens because of the fear that they begin to follow God. But just very quickly after that revival, you've got wicked kings, Manasseh and others that come who are just evil, wicked kings who practice idolatry. And they're like, well, if God's failing us, we need to get some other gods involved to try to save us because we're so afraid. And Yahweh's not doing what he's supposed to do for us. And well, you know what? At least the northern kingdom, they got what was coming to us and we don't deserve it because we're Judah. We're the lion of the tribe of Judah. We're from David and God said he's going to bring his king through us so he would never hurt us. He's never going to take us out. So in their pride they in their hearts they're at war with God and yet expecting his peace for them. It's not going to come. In 705 and 681 there's a guy named Sennacherib who was an Assyrian king who comes and he forgets everything about Yahweh. He, mo- he removes everything in the Assyrian Empire. He goes back and tears down all the documents and tears down the statues that were for Yahweh in Nineveh because he can't stand who Yahweh is. Sennacherib goes and he attacks the southern kingdom to kill them. You can read the story in the scriptures. You can also read it in, his, in the Assyrian history books. He goes in to kill Judah, it looks like Judah's going to die. The armies are on the walls and sieging the city. And God sends a plague. And Sennacherib has to flee for his life. And God warns Sennacherib not to do this. He has to flee for his life 
And when he gets back to his empire, his, his two sons kill him. And then the Assyrian empire becomes weakened because they forgot the name of Yahweh and they wouldn't listen. And God said, you're at war with me, now I have to be at war with you. As a result, Nahum comes in. He prophesies and warns the southern kingdom, hey, this isn't going to go well for you. You've, you need to repent. You need to change. Josiah is Manasseh's son. Josiah leads one of the greatest revivals ever in the history of Israel. And he brings revival. He listens to Nahum and some of the other prophets, and he surrenders and asks. But soon Josiah forgets. And Josiah's sons after him practice wickedness and go back to their grandfather Manasseh's wickedness. Manasseh also repents, by the way, earlier before Josiah. And then in 612, Nineveh falls. And at that moment, when Nineveh falls, God's people in the southern kingdom become the most prideful people you'll ever find on the face of the planet. Because they think, God destroyed our enemy. There's peace. There's no more war. Now we're strong. Now we've got it all. And God says, you had no idea I was rising up the Babylonians to come in to bring my discipline. I just couldn't do it through the Ninevites and bless them in any way, but I can use this guy Nebuchadnezzar for my glory. See, God's history is really weird. It shows that he's in charge and the things that happen are not random. He is literally moving the pieces. And if we ignore that, we don't understand who he is. Jonah was the one that went and preached. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Let's stop for, for a second. The word of the Lord came. This is what God does. The word of the Lord came. Jesus is called the what? The word. God is always trying to send his word. He's trying to reach humanity. He's always bringing his word. He's always bringing prophets. He's always bringing his word. He's trying to tell us, this is who I am. I love you, but I am a just God. And so he's constantly bringing his word all the time, and we refuse to remember it. We set it off. We don't want to listen. We don't want to hear from his word. And God sends his word to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee. God wants peace with people so badly. He's sending Jonah as a prophet of Israel to a wicked nation, trying to warn them and saying, if you don't do what I ask you to do, I am literally going to wipe you off the face of the earth in a moment. We find out later that the reason Nineveh was destroyed and the Babylonians were able to take over was not only the civil war within their own walls, but there was a great flood and Nineveh had a problem. They built the city so close to the floodwaters that when the wind and the storm that we sang about came and the rains came and the great flood that comes and if you build your house on the rock, it will stand, but if you build it on the sand, it will collapse. The great walls of Nineveh collapsed and the Medes and the Babylonians were able to march right in and wipe them out. That's not just Jewish history. It's Babylonian history that writes about it. So 
God calls Jonah to go ask Nineveh to repent, these wicked, awful people, to tell them they don't know who I am. Give them a chance to hear about who I am and see if I'm not working. Jonah doesn't want to go. He goes the opposite direction because he knows that if God spoke a word to him, it will happen. He hates the Ninevites. He hates the Assyrians. He wants them dead. I'm not doing it. You can kill me before I'll tell those people about you, is what Jonah says. God says, fine, I will send a wind. I will send a storm. I will send such a great storm that it will shake the foundations of the fishermen who are professional fishermen and fight storms for their whole livelihood, so scared that they will give up on their gods and start crying out to me. And then you'll have to look at them and say, yeah, it's my fault. Throw me in because it's, I'm the one that's rebelling against God and this whole wind and storm thing isn't the world's fault. It's not sin's fault. It's my fault. I own it. Man, if we would respond to God that way and if we saw his glory and his justice like Jonah did, even in Jonah's hard-heartedness. So they, they're, they're scared. They won't throw him in. They're like, if that's true, then your God will be even more mad at us if we throw you in. So we're not throwing you in. So they try even harder. It's not going well. So finally, they throw Jonah in and the storm calms immediately. Reminds me of another guy that came and calmed the storms and the waves, that Jesus guy that we read about in the New Testament. That God has power over creation. And when Jesus calmed the storms and the waves, just like those sailors in Jonah, the disciples, it says right there, were afraid. They became very afraid of Jesus. If this man can do this, what could he do to us? They thought. Jonah swallowed by a fish. Wasn't that awesome? You throw him over and it's all calm. You're like, oh, okay, well, let's pull him back in. You throw out the life preserver and he's gone. You're like, well, that was different. I guess we just keep sailing, you know? Three days later, Jonah spit up on the sea. He's literally spit up right by Nineveh, right there. He comes out probably looking white as a ghost being in fish acid. You know what I mean? Comes out probably naked as a jaybird. Comes out of this fish and they, guess what? Nineveh's one of their main gods is a fish. One of their main gods is a fish god. Go figure that God allowed that to happen. He gets spit out by this fish and they're like, fish god gave us a guy. We should listen to him. Jonah, Jonah goes and he, he gives the worst sermon ever given, ever, worst. He literally walks in the city and says, I don't want to be here. I've been dead and got resurrected and spit out by a fish. I don't care about any of you. God's going to kill you all if you don't repent. Yahweh's going to kill you. Bye. And he walks out. That is his message. That's his whole sermon. And Jonah thinks he did such a bad job of his sermon, he climbs the mountain not looking for peace that Nahum says, that we look for peace from the mountain. He climbs the mountain so he can go sit and watch God destroy Nineveh because he's like, there's no way they're repenting. They are so wicked and I just gave the worst sermon ever. And then Jonah sits down to watch him be destroyed and the entire city repents and cries out to Yahweh and the king and everyone put on sackcloth and ashes and said, if this Yahweh is true and he controls all other gods, we're submitting to him. And Jonah is so angry, the book ends with Jonah throwing a pity party for God saving people he didn't want saved. That's who our God is, and Jonah is like who we are. And if you think you're not that way, pause your heart for a moment. 
God has incredible mercy. And if they wouldn't have repented, God would have brought his justice. No questions asked. But God was doing a work and he was asking Jonah to meet him. And Jonah had enough faith to know that God is who he says he is. God's going to do what he wants. God spit me out on the shore. And still in the end, Jonah's like, and I don't care. I'm not, I don't want to do what God wants to do. Like God will use whoever he wants, but he wants us to be used willingly. He wants us to find peace in the war and joy in the battle and joy in the fight, not like Jonah. And God in his great mercy was trying to answer what he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he said, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham. I will curse those who, who treat you with contempt and all peoples of earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. That is the promise of God. And it's still true today that God blesses those who bless his people. He still is holding his promise. Go on in Luke eleven twenty nine. 29, this is Jesus. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign. I demand you prove yourself, Yahweh. You mister, you think you're God. How prideful and arrogant it is when we do that. Show me you love me. Show me. Prove it. Have you forgotten all the word of God? You, he needs nothing left to prove. God has nothing left to prove. He has proved it all. And yet sometimes in his great mercy, he still does prove himself. And he says, but no sign will be given to it, to Jerusalem, Except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. What happened to Jonah? He was swallowed up by his sin. He was spit out and he was resurrected and he gave a message of repentance that was very simple. Submit to God or die. He loves you. He cares about you. That was Jonah's message. That was Jesus' message. He goes on and he says, For just as Jonah became a sign, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation. And condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. For Jesus to say something greater than Solomon was there was a huge offense. They were looking for the Romans to be overthrown and Solomon to become great again. They were looking for Solomon to sit on the throne again and for them to reign and be great again. And for Jesus to say this would have been an incredible offense to them. And it says, look at this, verse 32. He's looking at the scribes and the Pharisees. He's looking at the most religious people you could find of the day. People who called themselves God's people. And this is what he says to them. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Excuse me? Do you know what Nineveh did to your ten tribes? Do you understand what Nineveh? And God says, no, no, no. The men of Nineveh that repented in Jonah's day, they'll be saved. My grace is sufficient. They're going to be saved, and you all aren't saved because you haven't repented and you don't believe in me. You're just doing the works for a different reason. Then he says, they repented at Jonah's proclamation, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. So now Jesus is claiming himself to be a prophet and to be greater than Jonah himself. 
Jesus goes on in that passage. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees. And then he gives them all these woes. Man, he just shreds them. He's like, this sin and that sin and this and that. I mean, he, in front of everyone, Jesus is shredding the pastors of his day. I mean, he is just merciless. And we know it was bad because in verse 53, it says, when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross and examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. They decided this Jesus is not who Yahweh is. Because this Jesus isn't bringing me what I think God should bring me. And if he's telling me these Ninevites are going to judge me, I want nothing to do with that God. How dare he change my view of God to what the Bible's view of God is. He goes on, he says this in Nahum, this is where he starts. He says, the Lord is. Anytime you see capital Lord, by the way, in the scriptures, that's, the, that's Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton. It's the four Hebrew consonants. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes and he is furious with his enemies. And when you see what Jesus said to those Pharisees in Luke, it is vengeance and anger towards them the religious leaders of his day, he was fuming mad at what they had done and what they did to God and what they had done to the people. Revelation says this, a sharp sword came from his mouth, that's Jesus, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Yahweh of Yahweh. This is the King Solomon you were looking for, and this really is the Yahweh who came. That's what that means. King of kings. He's better than Solomon. He's better than David. He's better than Sennacherib. He's better than Nebuchadnezzar. He's better than any other king that's ever come, and he is Lord of lords, which means he is the Lord of all lords, period. The question for us is, are we enemies or are we foes? How do you know if you're an enemy or if you're a friend of God? The Pharisees thought they were friends of God. They thought they were walking with God. And Jesus came and said, nope, you are sons of your father, the devil. You are a brood of vipers. Not my words. Jesus. And so we need to check our heart. and We need to know, am I an enemy or a foe? And just because stuff's happening to you doesn't mean you're an enemy of God. Stuff happened and Paul was crucified, killed. Peter was crucified upside down, most likely. James had his head cut off. All these men of faith died terrible deaths. So was God an enemy of theirs? No, not at all. God was trying to prove through their life that there was something more than just this life to live for. He goes on and say in verse 3, so once he says the Lord is vengeful, he's all these things, then he says the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. Now, this should both encourage us and frighten us, right? It should encourage us to be like, wow, I'm so grateful God is slow to get angry because I, man, I deserve to just be smited most of the time. And I am so glad he is patient. On the other hand, there's a little bit of fear because it's like, well, he's never going to leave the guilty unpunished. Can I just tell you, if you have trusted in Yahweh, if you have trusted in who Jesus is, he is Yahweh who saves, that's what his name means, you are declared innocent, you are not guilty anymore, and you never will be guilty again, period. Because 
Jesus did it, not you. And if you're still trying to earn it, then that means you don't understand the slow to anger, loving God that sits behind the wrath and justice we desperately want to see happen in the world. You don't believe me? Look at this. Peter says this in Peter 3, 9, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait and earnestly desire the coming day of the Lord. He's like, you're not afraid of the day. You're earnestly waiting and saying, I can't wait till things are made right. And I'm so glad he's making me right. And so I can trust him. I don't have to be afraid of that day. That's what God wants from his children, and unfortunately, we don't understand that. And when there's pride against God, there's usually physical cruelty involved towards other people and excuses why we can be cruel. Pride causes us to do everything we can to prevent any judgment and keep what we have. Humility says, nothing I have is mine, and we surrender. He goes on and says this, and Nahum repeats that verse, and in Romans 3.21, this is what Paul wrote, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. So in other words, everybody thought that the way to be right was obeying all these works. And, and Paul's like, no, the point of the law was to show you how desperate you were and how dead you were for God, just like the Ninevites realized, we haven't obeyed any of God's words, we just need to cry out to God for salvation. It said it's attested by the laws and prophets that God is, or that is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. The whole point of the law and the prophets was not to say, do all this stuff and you'll be saved. The point of the law and the prophets was to say, you can't save yourself. God's going to send a savior. Keep looking for him. Keep crying out to him. And as Peter writes, continue to serve him out of gratitude that he's already saved you, just not yet. That was supposed to be the heart of the people in the Old Testament and they twisted it to we can save ourselves. We can build a temple. We can build a great nation. We can do all this and hold on to it and we'll do everything we can to keep it. And God's like, no. Open your hands. Let me have it. He goes on. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. We're all in trouble. And then he says, they are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is a free gift. Just like the Ninevites were offered a free gift of repentance and they repented and God said, those Ninevites will judge you in the final judgment because they understood my grace in the Old Testament when all of my people were still trying to earn like their reward from me by doing all the sacrifices and everything they were doing. They wouldn't repent and just say, you are God, we surrender. What do you say about yourselves? We want to be your representatives. Galatians 2 says this, know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah. You, you will never feel like you've done enough. You, the war that we have with with the world that we're in and the law and everything that needs to be fixed, we can't do it. And if you live under that, trust me, I've been there, it is so crippling. 
But if you live in a place where you understand that I just need to place my faith in the fact that God can do it, that he'll, he can say he does it, and I can obey him not because I'm trying to get something now, but because I've seen thousands of years ago people obey him, and I've seen the fruit, and I've seen the promises of the future for those who obey him. So I just want to obey so I can see more people understand what I understand about God. I'm good with God. I'm saved. I know he knows me. I know he loves me. There's no question. But here's what I want others to know. That it isn't their works that saves them. It's God's incredible grace and mercy. So how do you know? Am I a child or not? Well, look at this, a few verses. In Deuteronomy 5.18, it says, Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. A good father disciplines his children. See, we can interpret the discipline of God as the punishment of God. It's not. You need to learn discipline. It'd be like you paying to get an exercise coach, right? And he says, here's when you show up. Here's what we're going to do three times a week, two hours. Here's the schedule. He gives you the whole thing, everything else. And the second that he hands you the schedule, you look at him and throw it in his face and say, how judgmental you are towards me, and walk out the door. And the guy's like, well, you asked for a relationship. I said, yes. We made an exchange like, you're going to pay me for this, and I made a plan for you, and now you're just mad and walking out the door? I just told you the truth. Like, you need to work on this part of your body and this health and these things. Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to help. You're judgmental. How dare you? Or it's like, okay, well, I'll try this. So you come in, and you try the first week. And at the end of the first week, you're just sore and miserable. And you look at your body in the mirror, and you're like, there's no change. You're horrible. You know, you're a terrible weight coach. I hate you. You just made me miserable, and you give up and quit. Because we can't stand discipline. And God is so patient with us as his children that he continues to remind us of who he is so that when we go through the discipline of the Lord, we're reminded that it's out of his love and care for us that he's given us these laws. He's given us this plan. He's written all this down. It's not because he hates us and he wants to make us miserable. It's he loves us. See, our problem is we'd rather run to the things of the world that give us temporary satisfaction than to believe the God of the scriptures that tell us that there's a satisfaction that goes from age to age. He goes on, he says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father, the son he delights in. Like if you delight in your children, you have to teach them discipline because if you don't, the world will discipline your children without any love or care for them at all. It's a guarantee. The world will discipline your kids if you don't teach them discipline. And they will do it mercilessly with no compassion and no slowness to anger. And if they do do it with some fake compassion and slow to anger, they're going to do it so they can kill him later because that's exactly what Satan's goal is. He wants to deceive us. He wants to keep us in the dark. He wants to make it look like we've got the, that we're good. And then in the end, when the judgment comes, we're done. And God's not that kind of God. God tells us his full character, who he is. He tells us the full reality of our world all up front and says, now what are you going to do? Trust me or not? That's how great our God is. He doesn't kind of hide. He doesn't kind of manipulate. He doesn't like, well, I just want you to know how loving I am. I don't want to talk about my judgment. No, he's just like, here I am. I'm vengeful. I'm wrathful. I'm judgeful. I'm slow to anger, and I love you. We don't like that kind of God, to be honest. It's really hard to manipulate. I like a God that, like, 
I can choose one or the other. And when I want wrath, because I want to be wrathful towards people, I want that God. So I want wrath God today. Wrath God's going to help me put a roll cage on the front of my truck and bump those drivers off the road that drive me nuts. Like that's, it's vengeful day, right? And then the next day I feel bad because I did vengeful day. So the next day it's like, oh, it's compassionate day and I'm carrying spare tires in the back of my truck and I'm just going to stop and help people change tires that day because I feel like grace God today. Because I feel so bad about what I did yesterday. God's like, no, that's not how it works. You submit to me regardless. And trust me. He goes on, he says, the one who will not use the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him disciplines him diligently. Again, it's like a weight coach. Diligently disciplines because he's trying to get him ready for something greater. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. So just because you're going through things doesn't mean you don't know who Yahweh is. It may just be you know him so well that he's ready to do some work with you and take you on a journey that's going to make you into someone you never thought you could be to do things you never thought you could do. But you've got to participate. You can't flee. You can't run. You've got to hunker down in the discipline. Nahum goes on and he says his path is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds of the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea so that it dries up and he makes all the rivers run dry. Don't think that the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm weren't thinking about this verse. They knew the prophets well in the disciples day. You want to know why? They wanted the Romans gone. So they really had a lot of books and preaching and teaching on all the prophets to try to give the people hope in the midst of Roman occupation. He says, Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, even rocks are shattered before him. Who can withstand? Who can withstand the judgment of God? No one but God himself, Jesus. So when Nahum is asking this, he's asking a rhetorical question to say, are you going to save yourself? Can you withstand it? The only person that can get you through this is Yahweh himself. He's the only one that can take the wrath we deserve. He's the only one that can provide the forgiveness. He's the only one that can pay the price. Nahum goes on and says this, another the Lord is. This is his third, Lord is. He says the Lord is good. Now, if you've just written six verses about the Lord's vengeance and all this kind of stuff, and then you say the Lord is good, you might be going, uh, not sure this is good. Really. Because we didn't have any problem doing uh, World War II. We had no problem taking out Hitler. And killing millions of Germans. Not a problem. So was that good or was that bad? See, vengeance and justice are necessary for peace in this world. There's no other alternative. There just isn't. Because we are so warlike and we fight so hard against God. Here's the great part. I've got someone who's willing to pay the price that I can remember died in my place so that I can be free. Memorial Day. Jesus died. He took. The Lord is so good that the Lord refuses to put anything on you or anything on anyone else that he doesn't first take on himself. That's what kind of God he is. 
He requires nothing like Solomon putting all the things, taxes and everything on the people while he lived in luxury and had a thousand wives at his, uh, concubines and wives at his disposal. No, no, no. God, Jesus, when he came, he took no wife. He took nothing. He gave all as a servant and a slave to us to lay down his life as the Messiah and his people rejected him because they couldn't stand that there would be a Messiah like that. Yahweh can't be that way. That's not who we're looking for. That's not who we want. That's not what I'm going to trust in. And I don't have to because there's lots of Pharisees and scribes and all these other people that are telling me that I can have God a different way. So I'm going to go that way. He says he's a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. Let me ask you, are you taking refuge in God? What do you take refuge in? Then he says, but he will completely destroy Nineveh. Look at this. With an overwhelming flood and he will chase his enemies into darkness. This was fulfilled. You can read the account of, uh, hold on, Diodorus Siculus. Diodorus Siculus wrote about the very event of the fall of Nineveh. You can read about it. He was a Greek historian. Not a Christian. Not a Jew. Secular Greek. And he writes about the flood of Nineveh that Nahum here is prophesying about because it hasn't happened yet. By the way, Nineveh was scared to death of a great flood that would undermine its walls, and so they spent billions of dollars in their days trying to gird up their walls so they wouldn't collapse in the floods. So when Nahum says this prophecy, he's warning them, the very fear you have is going to come. Your walls are going to cave and the enemy's going to come in. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to trust Yahweh? Or are you going to try just to make your walls stronger because you can't make them strong enough? He looks and he says, the enemy's going to come and chase the enemies into the darkness. God sends the Babylonians and the Medes. He sends a king to go in and chase the Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king leaves in the dark of night and is smuggled out and gets out of the city and establishes his throne in another city thinking that maybe he can recoup and come back and war again against the Medes and the Babylonians. That doesn't happen. It's just a decade or two later that the entire Assyrian empire is wiped out to never be heard of again, ever. Nahum goes on to say, whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. See, Sennacherib oppressed God's people. He rejected God. He rejected the prophets that came to him. He rejected all of that. And Sennacherib is who he's talking about here. He said, yes, Sennacherib came once, but I'm telling you, it's not going to happen again. For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard and like straw that's fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against Yahweh. That's Sennacherib and a wicked counselor. Sennacherib was telling them that we're the great Assyria. This is what Zephaniah says that was being said. Zephaniah the prophet in the Old Testament. Here's what Nineveh said about itself. Look at this. This is the self-assured city that lives in security. That thinks to herself, I exist I am in the Hebrew. And there is no one else. In other words, there is no other God. What a desolation Nineveh has become. A place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her jeers and shakes his fist. Zephaniah is prophesying. He's writing about the fact that this is what would be Nineveh. 
And it's exactly what happened. Nahum goes on and says, this is what the Lord says. This is the only time in the book that you'll see the phrase, the Lord says. It's right here. The Lord says, though they are strong and numerous, that's the Assyrians, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. The great king, the great Nineveh will pass away. And then he switches gears and God says, though I've afflicted you, Judah, and my people, I will afflict you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. Now he switches back to Nineveh. It's kind of like poetry where he's writing back and forth on either side. And then he says, I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows for the wicked will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. This is both a temporary and a long-term prophecy. And that's what prophecy normally is. God in his wisdom will give us a glimpse of who he is, a glimpse of the future, and he does it to see how we'll respond. But this isn't fulfilled until Jesus comes back forever. So this is an already, this is a not yet, then already, but not yet prophecy. Nahum's saying this hasn't happened yet, but then it's going to happen and it's already happened, but then not fully yet until God himself comes back. And that's what the Bible does. We try to read into prophecy and say, well, it already happened. It's like, well, yeah, but it's going to happen on a greater scale later. So yes, Assyria gets captured. Assyria collapses under the Babylonians and the Medes. That's exactly what happens. Judah celebrates. They celebrate their festivals. Josiah breaks out a revival for the nation. It's unbelievable. And within a generation, they're completely back to their wickedness, Judah is. They've completely forgotten God. They have forgotten completely forgotten to discipline their children to worship God Almighty. They no longer do the festivals. They don't do the vows. They have idols everywhere. And God says, well, let's go through the process again. And he sends in the Babylonians. And they're in captivity for 70 years, and then God delivers them out of that captivity, as Jeremiah says. Luke 4.14 When Jesus starts his public ministry, like Nahum started his declaration to us, Jesus is just beginning to start his public ministry after 30 years of doing, I don't know what, (laughs) 30 years of living as a son to his mother and brothers and sisters and like obeying God in every law and tittle of the Old Testament. 30 years. That's what he did. We have no significant events other than when he was 12 and went to the temple. That's it. Got it. Done. Check. So you think your life's boring? Son of God found very great contentment in just being God's son for about 30 years. Being faithful. Going to his synagogue. Matter of fact, that's where he's at. When he starts his public ministry, he just starts it in his local synagogue that he's been going to since he was a wee little boy. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is after he was in the wilderness with Satan. He was tempted. And it says, the news about him began to spread through the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being acclaimed by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as usual, for the last 28 years, or however long, when he came back from Egypt, as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This was not uncommon for Jesus 
The wonderful, obedient, beautiful, wonderful Jewish boy. Oh, he's gonna, oh, it's Jesus reading. I love when Jesus reads. He's such a nice boy, right? Jesus stands up to read. He says, the scroll, he asks, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. And this is what he said in Isaiah 52, 6. Therefore, my people will know my name. Who is Yahweh? Therefore, they will know on that day that I am he. Jesus is saying, I am he. Then he goes on. He says, here I am. Like, could you just picture this little boy being, I am he. Here I am. Everybody starts going, this sounds like he's referring to himself. It's kind of offensive. Who does he think he is? He says, just Joseph and Mary's boy. It actually says that in the passage. If you read in Luke, they start saying that. They're like, who does he think he is? He's, he's Joseph's boy. It's like, uh, no, he's not. He wasn't Joseph's boy. He was born of the Holy Spirit. Joseph had nothing to do with it. Okay, he goes on. Verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains. Does this sound familiar? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaim peace, who bring news of good things, who proclaim salvation, and who says to Zion, that's God's people, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together, for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. (laughs) Everyone in the synagogue realized after this first message what Jesus was saying. He was saying that he was God and that he was the Messiah and he was the one that was going to come. He was the great one and there was no other. And they became enraged. This boy that had been there for 30 years, faithfully, they had watched his faithfulness to God, this young man that everyone, I mean, he was allowed to read, he was like called, he was the altar boy, come read the scroll, and now they're like, let's kill him. Goes on and says this, they got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of a hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. We have the same response when God tells us who he is that the people in Jesus' day had so often. We don't like who God is. We want a God we make. And Nahum, Jesus, and the scripture says, this is the God who is. This is the world that is. Now how will you respond? And you can't save yourself. All you can do is surrender yourself to Jesus and allow him and the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the power to obey, to give you the power to keep repenting, to give you the power to come before him and say, here I am again. And God says, thank you. I am slow to anger. I am rich in compassion and faithful love. And that's all I want is a relationship with you. Don't keep me at a distance. And here, all they want is to get rid of the relationship they have with Jesus. They want him gone. Let me ask you this morning, Nahum says, for I will break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. What's your yoke and your shackle that you carry that you you need to let Jesus tear off? You need to believe that Yahweh is who he says he is and he can free you. 
Is it the yoke and the shackle of a relationship's going to fix your life other than Jesus? Is it the yoke and the shackle of the way you do finances and your refusal to give it over to God? Is it the yoke and the shackle of your power and your career and what you hold on to? What is it that you cling to that, that, that God's like, I want to tear that off. I want to show you a better way to live. He goes on, he says, look to the mountains, the feet of one bringing news and proclaiming peace. Do you believe that God wants you to have peace? I think some of us think he, like we don't want his peace. We wouldn't even think he just wants to hurt us all the time because I deserve it. That is not biblical. God does not want to hurt you if he's your child. He wants to tell you, I love you, and he wants to help you. And he wants the body of Christ to help you. Now, is that painful? Yeah, try working out when you haven't worked out in a long time. It hurts. You get sore. And you think, what have I done to myself? And why did I participate in this? And he goes on and he says, celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. Man, we need to hear that today. God says, celebrate together. That's what we're going to do at 2 o'clock this afternoon. We're going to get together and there's not going to be me preaching. You don't have to listen. Praise the Lord. We're just going to celebrate being God's children. Being in his presence and eating food that I didn't fix. Praise the Lord. Because Greg's going to fix great food because he always does. I always look forward to going to Greg's house. Like that. Okay, check. Celebrate your festivals. Good. Fulfill your vows. Fulfill your vows. Your yes be yes, no be no, and anything beyond that's sin. And so if you can't keep your yes and your no, guess what? That's sin. You know what you do? You repent. Sorry, I broke my word. Please forgive me. I don't know if I can fix it. Okay. That's called to extend grace to you. Let's work on it. <laughs> that, that's the gospel. Nahum is laying out the gospel, the, the gospel of peace. Nahum's preaching it. He's like, there's going to be one that comes that does this for you because you can't do it yourself. And the wicked one's never going to march again. Can I just encourage you, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have not surrendered to the fact that he is Yahweh, who is the great I am and Messiah, do it. Just say, I'm done. I surrender. And you know what? It doesn't mean everything's going to fix. But now you know what you have? You've got a relationship. You've got a father. You've got a son. You've got a, a Holy Spirit that comes around you to say, let's do this together. You've got a body of Christ that begins to put their arms around. says, let's learn how to celebrate and keep our vows together. It's like, can you do those in the same? Like, when I keep my vows, I'm not very celebratory. It feels like I'm keeping my vows, and that kind of makes me miserable. I'd rather just be celebratory, and then, like, somebody else can do my vows. Like, no, it's both. Can I just encourage you? Who do you believe God is? What do you want from him that he hasn't already promised or hasn't already said? If you've got health issues, God says you're going to get a new body. Woohoo! Praise God, I need one. They cut stuff off of mine this week. Right? They're like, here, i got to cut this off and send it in to find out how bad your body is. Great. Hack at me. That's wonderful. Like, I need a new body. I'm thankful I'm getting one someday. It's just not going to be till I'm dead. Like, I, I'm not going to get one. And if I do, that's weird. I don't know how we're going to do that. If that happens, ew. take my brain and stick it in somebody else. I don't know. I don't think I want to be a part of that. Just let me go. God has not changed. He is the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. Like Memorial Day, we have to remember that his goal has already been for all of eternity to set us free. And we keep going back to slavery and captivity. And God says, I want to set you free. The question is free to do what? Free to represent me to a world that wants to kill you. And they might just take your life. But you know what? You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to try to do it. God freely gives his grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. And Jesus modeled it perfectly to us. The question is, will we listen to Nahum and Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul and Peter, Jesus? Or will we create a God, a Yahweh, who is who we want him to be? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for this testimony in Nahum and his oracle that he gives. I thank you that you are slow to anger and patient. That Peter says the reason that you haven't come back and made things right is because you desire that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so you're waiting and you've called us to to take that message to the world, to tell them who you really are, not who they've made you out to be. And when we do that, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a great peace in us to believe that and to know that and to trust in that. But there's going to be a war when we walk out into the world. And you modeled it. You came bringing peace. You announced peace from Isaiah in your local synagogue in Nazareth to tell the people there can be a lasting peace in you And their response was war. They wanted to kill you. And Lord, it's no different for us. But Lord, the great part is, is every once in a while, every once in a while, you're going to break through and there's going to be a Nineveh that repents. There's going to be a Paul that stops killing and surrenders. Every once in a while, there's going to be someone who's ready to hear that you've prepared And they cry out with us, Yahweh is. And man, when that happens, we know we've won the war. And I thank you that because we know you, we can know that you're going to win the war. Because if you can win this wicked heart that I have, then you can win any heart. And so we trust you, we thank you, we praise you. Help us to celebrate together, help us to keep our vows And help us to honor you because there's a world watching. And there's a world that's being destroyed by your judgment that needs to be freed. And we thank you for that memory that we can have that you've done it before. And that someday you're going to come back and do it forever. In your name, amen.